I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Psychedelic drugs are on the verge of a breakthrough. They're legal in two states, decriminalized in others. Some could be approved by the Food and Drug Administration to treat PTSD or depression as soon as this year. But there's no doubt that drugs like psilocybin and MDMA still have a stigma. And that's why this is so remarkable. Rise in support of Amendment 23 to create a grant program for psychedelic treatment for PTSD. That may come as a shock to many, and I say good, because to be frank, we need new ideas because it seems we are losing the battle with veteran suicide. That was Congressman Dan Crenshaw, a combat veteran and Republican from Texas, advocating for federal funding back in 2022. And it was remarkable because in December, Congress directed the Pentagon to start studying whether psychedelic drug can help soldiers recover from the trauma of experiencing war. And just last month, the Department of Veterans Affairs announced that it will also begin funding psychedelic-assisted therapy to treat veterans with PTSD and depression. After the break, we dive into how psychedelic-assisted therapy could help soldiers and veterans and what role that therapy might play in easing PTSD and other mental health burdens of combat. I'm Todd Zwillick, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. We've got a lot more to get into. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when... That couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. With me now is Juliana Mercer. She's a Marine Corps veteran and director of public policy for Healing Breakthrough. That's a nonprofit that works to help veterans get access to alternative therapies. Welcome to the studio, Juliana. Thank you, Todd. I want to talk about the legislation that you advocate for and the policy that's churning through Congress right now, but also really the stories of vets like you who've experienced trauma and also have used therapeutic psychedelics because this is new to a lot of people. And let's face it, a lot of people, probably most people, have an idea in their heads about what psychedelics are. And it's not treatment for vets, let's be honest. So what, what parts of your military service brought you 
to the issue of trauma and recovery from PTSD? So it's been a, a long road. Um, I went into the Marine Corps right before 9-11. I actually graduated boot camp a couple of weeks before 9-11. Wow. Um, everyone's life changed that day, but my the trajectory of my life really changed. Um, I didn't imagine that my entire 20s and 30s were going to be spent at war, um, me being at war, my friends being at war, my country being at war. And Throughout my military career, deployed to Iraq, Afghanistan, um, but I also had the opportunity to work with our wounded warriors at the Naval Hospital in San Diego and was able to help our wounded figure out how to live their lives post-injury. So that work directly translated into me getting into the veteran nonprofit space, um, continuing to help veterans not fall into what I call the black hole and helping them to hopefully find purpose that enables them to live a good life post-military. That was really frustrating work. Mm. The veteran suicide rate has not changed. It's at 6,000 a year. And the VA says suicide is the second leading cause of death amongst all veterans under the age of 45. So there it is right there. You were in Afghanistan and Iraq, as you mentioned. Um, how have you seen the dark hole, the mental health challenges grow in the years since you left the service, the, the, the burden that vets are facing? That number, that 6,000 a year, um, every, we've tried so many things to help. We've tried everything and anything, and nothing had moved the needle in the right direction. Um, I personally found myself in that black hole, um, in a place with no purpose, even after all of the work that I was doing that was really purposeful. And I knew that I needed help. Um, I sought out talk therapy. And that helped me not feel so alone, but it didn't help me get to the root cause of the problem. And that's when I connected with a nonprofit called Heroic Hearts Project and was able to go outside of the country to access psychedelic therapy and was able to have an experience with psilocybin mushrooms where I was able to shed that 20 years of collected trauma and grief. And I want to talk a lot more about that. By the way, if you're a veteran having thoughts of suicide or concerned about someone who is Reach 24-7 crisis support through the new veteran crisis line number, dial 988, then press 1, and that's available to you. Um, Juliana, you talk about your own dark hole. If you're willing to talk about it a little bit more, I'd like to get a sense of how deep the hole was or where it was, because that'll give us a sense of how psychedelics then helped in your experience, if you care to talk about it. Yeah, I, I think I was a typical veteran, um, experienced lots of different types of trauma, whether it was in Iraq or Afghanistan, um, through my work with our wounded, seeing you know my own trauma, but also the trauma of my brothers and sisters, so it's that secondhand trauma, um, and, and also the trauma of losing people here at home at such a high rate. I, that was a lot of things that were collected, and eventually all of those boxes that I kept putting away and not dealing with got to me and I was doing real purposeful work, but no longer felt like I had a purpose. So you sought the traditional therapies, talk therapy, see a shrink, that, to use the shorthand. <laughs> yeah. um, to no avail, you said you went overseas to be able to seek psil to psychedelic or psilocybin treatment? I had to leave the United States to go somewhere where it was not illegal. Mm -hmm. um, I went to Mexico and was able to access psilocybin therapy. So psilocybin, 
people might have heard the term. That's magic mushrooms. That's what they call them. The therapeutic dose is supposed to be controlled, might be in a capsule form, places where people take them as therapy, not as a party drug. When you took psilocybin for this purpose, what did you feel? What happened? The, the subjective experience that people who take these drugs therapeutically describe is, is fascinating, and, and, but it can be very, very subjective. What happened when you took it? Um, I was able to give myself credit for all of the trauma that I had, in fact, endured. Um, so that was the first thing that happened. But the second thing that happened was I was able to actually feel and experience the pain and the grief. I was able to let it flow through me after I felt it and experienced it. And I released that 20 years of collected trauma and grief and woke up the next day and that huge weight was completely gone. And I was reconnected to my loving, joyful, authentic self and had a huge smile on my face mm. and knew this was the solution that I'd been looking for. Did this happen after one course of the drug? This is, this is one experience you're yes. talking about. Have you had repeated doses of psilocybin since? Is this an ongoing therapy or was this a one-time insight? For me, this was a one-time experience that allowed me to shed everything that I needed to shed. It was followed up by, which is very important, um, I had therapy afterwards. And that, that experience with the psilocybin um, allowed me to really go deep and confront the root causes of my issues. And it allowed me to confront those issues with empathy and with love and compassion towards myself and really gave me that chance to heal. It's a remarkable level of insight. I mean, I, I'm not inside your head, of course, but that level of insight after one course of this drug is the kind of thing, it's a therapist's dream. It's the kind of thing people work for years on. And I'm not suggesting it's a magic solution by any means, but your your self-report is a remarkable story of of insight and sort of inner resolution from from one course on this drug. It is. I remember the moment with my therapist when I threw my hands up in the air and was like, we, we broke through, we got this. Um, Juliana, we mentioned that Congress has passed legislation that is authorizing studies at the Pentagon and now the VA. Um, your personal experience, I think, is remarkable. Clinical studies in an institution like the Pentagon or the VA is something completely different. What do you want to see out of these studies that you think can help? So I think we have seen uh, the efficacy of MDMA, 71% effective in eliminating a PTSD diagnosis. It's going to be FDA approved, hopefully towards the end of this year. And we're working on making sure that the VA rolls out a program to um, be able to administer this therapy. So it's a medication in conjunction with therapy um, to help start putting a dent in the veteran suicide rate. The NDAA, um, so the... That's the defense authorization bill. Yes. The requirement to establish processes to allow members to participate in clinical trials is historic. And so is the VA's announcement that they're going to start funding this research. Now, MDMA is Molly. It's ecstasy. People have heard of it. And doesn't that make dusty government institutions go, whoa, 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 no? You would think. But when I tell them that we have a solution to a problem that we've all been looking for, and that the solution is 71% effective in eliminating the PTSD diagnosis, it's really hard for them to say no. There's science behind it, there's facts, and we all want to help and end the veteran suicide epidemic. 
Juliana Mercer's story of personal insight after taking psychedelics is one person's story, and it's only one person's story, but there are thousands like her, and now the Pentagon and the VA are waking up to a new era of this research. That was Juliana Mercer. She's a Marine Corps veteran and director of public policy at Healing Breakthrough. That's a nonprofit that works to help veterans get access to alternative therapies. Juliana, thank you so much. Thank you, Todd. Coming up, we're going to dig into the science behind psychedelic-assisted therapies and why some U.S. veterans want to see it become more accessible for treating PTSD. Back with more in just a moment. Hey. I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at LifeKit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the LifeKit podcast from NPR. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch, and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond, the NPR Politics Podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday. Let's get back to the conversation. Former Navy SEAL Marcus Capone has been waiting years for the federal government to make these treatment options more accessible to vets like him. It's why he founded VETS, Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions, in 2019, amid his own struggles with PTSD and traumatic brain injury, also known as TBI. VETS is a nonprofit that provides resources for veterans seeking psychedelic-assisted therapy, and he joins us now from Miami. Marcus, welcome to 1A. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to have you. And joining us here in the studio is Brandon Weiss. He's a faculty clinical scientist at Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research. Brandon, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, Brandon, your study of psychedelics for treating mental health disorders, what exactly is psychedelic-assisted therapy? Yeah, so psychedelic-assisted therapy is a you know relatively new concept, um, but we've been researching it for now a couple decades. It involves um, doing preparation work um, with people, preparing them for a psychedelic experience. Generally, one or two dosing sessions with a psychedelic drug. Most of the research has been on psilocybin. And then what we call integration sessions, which is... Um, an open-ended format for patients to discuss with the therapists and guides what their experience was like, what insights uh, arose. So this is interesting. It sounds like the treatment course, if I can call it that, is a little different from, let's say, anti-depression drugs people have heard about, Prozac, where you take a little bit every day for years or maybe life. Juliana's experience, our Marine Corvette, 
was sort of one and done, took it once, had, I think, what she would consider extremely meaningful insights, and then therapy from there. Is that typical? Um, it is. Um, there's a difference between um, different psychedelic therapies. So classic psychedelics like psilocybin, um, we tend to find that people don't necessarily do better after a second uh, psilocybin session. Um, but with MDMA, we find that people Im improve with each session. Um, and evidence is also um, directing us to really take seriously the period after um, these these uh, drug sessions um, where there might be a critical period of plasticity occurring where people can learn things that they that they hadn't been able to before. Critical period of plasticity, meaning they just had an insight and now they're really open to changing their pattern, changing their way of thinking. Exactly. It's fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about the data. Congress has approved funding to study a wide range of psychedelics, but a couple have stood out. You've mentioned them, psilocybin, MDMA, known casually as Molly, but here known as MDMA. Um, give me a sense of the, the clinical data such as that it exists. Um, let's start with psilocybin, if, if you like. You describe the treatment source. What do the data say about the outcomes that, that people could expect? Yeah. Uh, so the largest studies that have been done to date have shown that after a single session um, of psilocybin, uh, remission rates are about uh, 20 to 30 percent. And there is ev also evidence of remission rates being as high as, as 80 percent. So there's some uh, variability across the studies that have been done. For PTSD? Uh, no, sorry. So this is for depression. Okay. And uh, there really hasn't been any controlled clinical research yet on the effect of uh, these classic psychedelics on PTSD. Um, for MDMA, as Juliana mentioned, um, they experience a 71% uh, remission rate. Well, let's let's go to another vet. Marcus Capone, you're here. You're you're a SEAL, former Navy SEAL. And, and, and during your time as a SEAL, you did combat tours, of course, with SEAL Team 6. People have heard of SEAL Team 6. They know exactly what it is. And in that time you experienced a, a lot of close-range explosions. What impact did that consistent exposure to explosions have on, on your body and your mental health? Yeah, um, you know, I think a lot of research, you know, is, is really coming out now to show that these uh, concussive or really sub-concussive blows are causing a lot of the issues that, um, you know, not only special operations veterans, even though special operations veterans... Um, the data is showing, you know, we're exposed almost uh, four times the amount as, as conventional forces to um, explosions, uh, gunfire, et cetera. Um, but a lot of these subconcussion blows are causing um, really our bodies to, you know, to, to come out of homeostasis. And so it's causing our endocrine system, our, our testosterone to be low. You know, individuals shouldn't be coming back overseas at 30 years old with their testosterone levels under 300. I mean, and so, you know, you take, uh, you take an individual that's been exposed to all these, uh, these blasts and uh, an individual has depression, they have anxiety, they're angry, they can't sleep. Um, and we get, you know, we kind of get grouped uh, into having PTSD. And, and yeah, I think many of us do have PTSD, but, you know, we have these comorbid diagnoses of, of traumatic brain injury and PTSD. And, you know, as a, as a doctor, how do you treat an individual with, you know, talk therapy and, you know, traditional, ther you know, traditional medications that we've had uh, 
only access to, which are you know antidepressants or SSRIs. And so, you know, I was uh, you know I was one of those individuals that that um, saw my first psychologist in 2007 while still on active duty. I was prescribed my first antidepressant in 2010, and and I was on a host of medications from 2010 to 2017 um, with really uh, little to no results. Hmm. How, how did you realize at first that you were in a in a dark place? When did it become clear to you that you needed to seek therapy? Yeah, I, th- I think it's just one of those things where you start to you start to isolate. Um, you start to have really no emotion. Um, you know, uh, thank God for my wife. I wouldn't be here today. But you know, when when you hear her speak about it, it's much easier for a person on the outside uh, to look at the individual um, and see the changes that they're going through. And you know, it seemed like every year. Uh, that I would deploy, I would come back, you know, a different person. And, you know, by, you know, 2010, 2011, I was just really numb. And uh, I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to answer texts. Um, when I got out of the military in 2013, uh, you know, I, I really isolated. I'd lost, the, you know, my community. I lost the, our brotherhood. Um, you know, I really didn't have an outlet. And, you know, I could, I could CrossFit and PT as much as I wanted to, but uh, it really wasn't helping. And, you know, each year that I was out of the military, um, it just it just got worse. And, you know, it came to a point where um, I thought, um, you know, my wife and kids would be better, um, you know, just living without me because I felt like I was a burden. I was a burden on them. Um, you know, our, our, our marriage wasn't good. My relationships to the kids weren't good. And I figured, you know what, they don't they don't deserve this. They deserve um, a much happier life, and you know, if I wasn't here, then you know, you know, maybe uh, that that would be able to grant them that opportunity. Mm. And so, um, you know, it, it came to a point where uh, you know, I, I thought, you know, it, I I didn't care <laughs> anymore. You know, it, nothing mattered um, at that moment. Marcus, I want to talk about your treatment experience as well, real quickly, Brandon. What what happens in the brain when a person is experiencing PTSD? Yeah, so in the brain, we know that individuals, um, when they're experiencing PTSD, ultimately is um, is, a, is a highly stressful response from the body, um, and we see, and so we see PTSD um, in regions of the body that are associated with stress. So the amygdala, which is the seat of threat vigilance and um, uh, threat detection, that's overactive in individuals with PTSD. We also find other regions of the brain that are involved in regulating the amygdala and in general motion regulation, um, that those regions are not fulfilling that role anymore. We find uh, dysfunction in um, areas of memory processing, like the hippocampus, um, which may be uh, preventing some kind of revision to the memory, engagement with the memory. Um, We also find um, uh, differences in how what's called the HPA axis is uh, is functioning, and so the HPA axis includes the hypothalamus, the pituitary, and the agre- adrenal. Um, we find that that's overactive as well. So, Marcus, you described the very dark place, very graciously described the very dark place you were in to us. You eventually decided to try ibogaine. We haven't talked about ibogaine yet. It's a psychedelic derived from the aboga plant, a shrub native to Central Africa. It's been used for centuries locally, but here. It's considered dangerous. It's a Schedule One drug here in the United States. That'll that'll cause the DEA to knock on your door. <laughs> Walk us through your decision to try it and what it was like. Yeah, I was at a place where 
you know, I started looking into alternative therapies when uh, talk therapy and uh, SSRIs were not working for me. Um, I mean, I wasn't even getting a response out of these. And so, you know, I started looking into, you know, uh, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, TMS, um, you know, anything that uh, was, um, you know, available to me. And, you know, here's the part that I think you know, America needs to understand. As a, as a former special operations veteran, as a former Navy SEAL, I had unlimited uh, access to the treatments that I needed to heal, and I still wasn't getting better. So, you know, what does the rest of America have, mm. you know, that's afforded to them, right? And, and so um, if you take an individual like myself and, and thousands of others who, de- you know, who serve and, and have access to many of these kind of tip of the spear treatments and we're not getting better, like what are we doing for everybody else, right? And that's why, the, you know, as Juliana mentioned earlier, um, you know, that's why our, our, our suicide rate is so high. Um, but, you know, I was at a point where I, I really would have tried anything if you told me that I was going to get better. Can you describe um, a little bit yeah. the, the experience, the subjective experience you had when you tried Ibogaine? Yeah. Um, you know, so, so in an, you know, long story short, you know, my wife Amber found a clinic uh, in Mexico uh, where Ibogaine is, um, it's not, uh, not illegal. And it's, you know, it's really potent psychoactive drug, uh, as you mentioned, extracted from, uh, you know, Tabernathia boga shrub. Um, it was a six to 12 hour experience. Uh, the first, I'd say two to six or seven hours were, uh, some of the most intense experiences, uh, of my life. Um, it took me to a really dark place. Um, the thing about Ibogaine, um, it shows you what you need to see, not necessarily what you want to see. And mm-hmm. so... Um, again, as Juliana mentioned, uh, if you do have past traumas or if, if you are seriously depressed, there's, there's something causing that, right? Something's hanging out in your subconscious that's, you know, allowing you to be this individual that, that you're not, not your true self. And so you actually visit and go back and visit these experiences while you're on the drug. And for me, it was experiences of my childhood. Um, it was experiences of, you know, war. It was experiences of, uh, you know, some of my best friends uh, that were lost, you know, in combat. It was experiences that were obviously affecting my everyday life. And, and what, the, what Ibogaine does, it allows you to experience these again from different perspectives. So you may be back in the situation again, or you may be sitting above the situation and looking at it. And as we all know, what talk therapy tries to do eventually is it gets to the root cause of the problem that you're trying to solve. And that's what Ibogaine is able Mm. to do in such a short amount of time. That's why it's so powerful. We're going to head now to a quick break. Still to come, we're going to talk more about a recent study published by Stanford on the use of Ibogaine for the treatment of traumatic brain injuries in special ops vets. Back with more in a moment. The economy right now is bewildering, impenetrable, inconceivable. Not when you have the indicator of podcast in your ears. In under 10 minutes every day, we simplify the complicated news like... How does inflation drop? What the heck is a SPAC? Why are trendy little high-fiber sodas suddenly dominating store shelves? And more. Listen to the indicator from Planet Money and NPR. Let's get back to the conversation now. We have another voice joining us. Dr. Nolan Williams is the Director of Interventional Psychiatry Research at Stanford University. Welcome, Dr. Williams. 
Thanks for having me. Well, great to have you. Well, you you recently partnered with Marcus's organization, Vets, doing observational studies on the effects of ibogaine. That's the drug from Central Africa that we talked about with Marcus. Ibogaine therapy for special ops veterans suffering from TBIs, traumatic brain injuries, and PTSD. How was this study performed, and and what did you find? Yeah, we partnered with with vets um, a number of years ago, and uh, for the reasons you mentioned earlier, um, this being a Schedule One uh, substance in the United States, and and um, no one being able to do ibogaine research in the U.S., we had to uh, get a little creative in how we conducted this trial. So we actually um, enrolled. Uh, special operations veterans that were um, headed to Mexico anyways to receive Ibogaine um, and brought them into Stanford ahead of time. We did a full clinical battery, neurocognitive battery, um, EEG, MRI, this whole suite of um, assessments beforehand. They uh, traveled down to to Tijuana, um, received the Ibogaine, uh, and came back to Stanford, and then um, most of those folks came back again uh, at the one-month mark. And, uh, and what we found was was quite striking, really dramatic um, reductions in PTSD, depression, and anxiety scores, but also in uh, disability scores um, suggestive that uh, we were having an effect on the disability related to their traumatic brain injury. Marcus described a subjective experience of confronting trauma, confronting negative experiences, and I—I I don't mean to speak for him, but just for just for the second here, having w- some significant insight, having confronted some dark parts uh, lingering in his in his consciousness. I'll put it that way. Is that typical of what you see in patients? Yeah, it's um, particularly. Um, it, it happens. Um, you know, almost everybody with Ibogaine in a very particular way. And so people will say that they approach these earlier life emotionally salient memories in a process they call the slideshow or the life review, where um, folks will kind of walk through a lot of these um, chronological memories, um, be exposed to them, sit from a pretty neutral place, be able to see them and uh, seemingly, you know, re-understand that event and reconsolidate that memory. And folks will do that for hours on end, as as Marcus described earlier. And uh, with that, um, new insights into those um, particular life events. And I think that uh, very likely is part of the therapeutic effect. Mm. Um, Brandon, we talk about Schedule One drugs. We have to because most of these drugs remain illegal. I mean, it's just it's just as simple as that. Although for some of these drugs, as we mentioned, that might be slowly changing now, especially for MDMA and psilocybin. In, in some circumstances, you mentioned observational studies using ayahuasca, mm. slightly different from ibogaine. Um, what have you learned through observational studies there? You talked about them a little bit. Are the subjective experiences and the 
at least what you've observed, is the therapeutic reaction similar to, to what Dr. Williams described? So um, ayahuasca includes, um, as, its, as its active kind of psychoactive ingredient, DMT, uh, dimethyltryptamine, um, which is very different uh, pharmacologically um, than ibogaine, um, although they share um, basically binding to a particular serotonin receptor in the brain. Um, and so we're likely to see um, somewhat different phenomenological effects between the two. But in general, um, in my research, we have found that individuals um, who go into ayahuasca ceremony, this is indigenous practice of ayahuasca, that they report at very high rates re-experiencing adverse life events from the past. Um, and those have particular properties um, that we're still that our research is kind of still investigating. We're hoping to do that at Johns Hopkins. Um, but some of that involves, like I said before, making new meaning out of it. So you're early here. You're very early in this research, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. I would say so. Early stages. Well, it'll be interesting to follow where it goes. Um, Dr. Williams, how significant do you think it is this move by Congress to fund clinical trials of some of these other treatments? Uh, MDMA, psilocybin in some cases, um, in the military and, and in veterans. How big of a deal is that? I, I think it's a very big deal. I mean, it signals an openness to to these um, compounds as being therapeutic, and it signals that we're headed in a new direction for how to treat you know some of the sickest um, folks in our society, people that um, suffer from wounds of war. And as Marcus described earlier, um, you know, the conventional treatments um, aren't working for them. That's Dr. Nolan Williams. He's the director of interventional psychiatry research at Stanford University. Dr. Williams, thanks for your expertise. We, we appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me. Marcus, how could this new funding from the DOD and the, and the VA change the way your work happens, the way your nonprofit, for instance, um, helps veterans access these treatments. We've, we've talked about, the, frankly, the danger here of, of self-administration and, and self-experimentation. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think, you know, what we're all getting to in this in this conversation today is that, you know, we're just broadening access right now. Individuals are coming to vets, um, the nonprofit seeking, you know, a lifeline. And we, we you know, we get upwards of 10 applications a day. It's, it's really sad um, when you read these stories. They're very similar to mine and Juliana's. And, and you know, you have to turn away almost all of them um, because the resources aren't there. And the fact that these are Schedule 1, you know, these individuals have to try travel outside the United States uh, to seek uh, life-changing uh, treatment protocols. And so this is just going to open up the opportunity for um, all the other folks that are, are, are seeking help, um, can't find it through traditional means and, and tra- traditional, again, meaning talk therapy and, and, and SSRIs, and allow um, veterans, uh, you know, and, and active duty, um, you know, with comorbid diagnoses um, have a chance to, to heal, have a chance to live their life. Um, after 20 years of sustained combat, uh, you know, a 40-year-old has half their life to live and they shouldn't uh, be doing it uh, in struggle. The science goes on and as the culture and frankly the legality of these drugs changes, questions like that will be easier to answer. It's new science, a lot of unanswered questions, but fascinating areas of research that are going to challenge a lot of therapists and psychiatrists, I think, to think in new ways about therapy for vets and for the general population. We got this email from Charles who writes, I'm a retired Marine. I was 100 percent disabled because of a diagnosis of PTSD. If psychedelics can help, they deserve serious study. 
I lost a lot of what could have been happy times with my beloved late wife because of the turmoil of my own emotions. PTSD stunted what was a promising career, used every tool at our disposal, cost be damned. I want to thank my guest for this hour, Marcus Capone, former Navy SEAL, co-founder of the nonprofit Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions. Brandon Weiss has been here, faculty clinical scientist at Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelic Consciousness and Research. Thank you so much. Today's producer was Emil Sekiros. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington. It's distributed by NPR. I'm Todd Zwillick. We'll talk again soon. This is 1A. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL. Because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts.